0: Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra,
1: and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
2: and so when i woke up strapped down at my my wrists and my ankles were strapped to the bed i couldn't move except to kind of lift my head up and my shoulders up a little bit to that box that sound i immediately connected all those dots that i had been taken by a ufo and you know people ask me well how long did it take for him to brainwash you i said all of that grooming is brainwashing. It took 10 seconds. I'm, I'm 12 and I'm a young 12. I'm a tiny little 12. You know, I'm an innocent 12.
0: Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected what our parents bring to our lives and what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you you, what makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, Please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, my beautiful friend, do you suffer from depression? Symptoms of depression are not always obvious. You might feel constantly tired, you might be low in energy, low in motivation. You might have constant feelings of anxiety or worry, feelings of sadness or feeling constantly guilty about everything. If this sounds like you, take a look at Destroy Depression. It's a treatment plan that works regardless of your symptoms or your age. It's a totally drug-free, straightforward plan that explains everything you need to know about eliminating depression step by step. Destroyed Depression helps you dominate your depression. It helps you take back control over your symptoms. And it comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so you really have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Click the link in the show notes to find out more about how Destroyed Depression can help you, because you really do deserve to live your life free from the symptoms of depression. Hello my beautiful friends. Welcome to the podcast. This week's story is truly extraordinary. It is like no story you will ever have heard before and that's because if this story was written as fiction you wouldn't believe it. Jan Broberg was kidnapped by her neighbour Robert Birchtold. You may also hear him referred to as B on this podcast. Pretty much under the watch of of her parents. And that's why this story is so fascinating. Many of us have had encounters or relationships with narcissistic personalities who are extremely manipulative and who leave us in so much confusion about how we could have been manipulated in such a way. But Robert Birchtoll was a sociopath, perhaps even a psychopath. He lived in in a fantasy world that he created and he manipulated everybody. His entire life revolved around planning and executing this kidnapping because in hindsight, you can see the planning that went into it. And then incredibly, after they were caught and brought home, he abducted Jan a second time. I spoke to Jan for 90 minutes, which I've made into two episodes, and there is still so much of this story that we couldn't cover on this podcast. In the show notes, you will find links to Jan's book, The Jan Broberg Story, her community for child abuse survivors called Throvivors, and her podcast, The Jan Broberg Show. Also just released is a new Peacock limited series TV show called A Friend of the Family starring Anna Paquin, Colin Hanks and Jake Lacey which tells the entire story over nine episodes. One in four girls and one in six boys have been sexually assaulted by someone familiar to them. It's only three percent that are attacked by what you would call a stranger. Almost 97% is someone that is acquainted with the child or with the family. These are terrifying statistics, and it is the reason that Jan continues to share her story, to try and bring awareness to how deeply manipulative and easily missed this abuse can be. Please join me now for Jan's story. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. I watched your original documentary and it's fascinating because I think if someone wrote a novel with this storyline, you'd be like, well, that sounds crazy as if that would ever happen because you were abducted by a pedophile pretty much under the watch of your parents. But the level's... Of manipulation by this man called Robert Birchtold in the lives of you and your family is completely mind-blowing he really groomed your entire family and I think so many listeners of the podcast have had experiences with a narcissistic personality which is all about manipulation but would you describe Robert Birchtold as a psychopath is that what he would be classified as
2: Well, I think for sure a sociopath, if not a psychopath, because he was a criminal beyond being a pedophile. He really had a criminal mind and he had, he had to have had just no empathy in order to do what he did to me and others that I now know of. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to believe that it could go on and on like it did with him before me and after my experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone listening... A psychopath isn't always a serial killer. I mean, they're the ones that we see, but psychopaths are described as superficially charming, highly intelligent, and they don't feel love or empathy, remorse or shame, among many other traits. Before you met the Birchtold family, how would you describe your family?
2: Oh, I had a wonderful family. I was one of the lucky ones that had parents who were just unconditional in their love for us, their support for us. My mom and dad knew that, you know, I loved, you know, I was theatrical even from the crib. My dad would describe me like we'd come in the morning and thinking, oh, we'll just peek in and see if she's awake. And there I was at the crib just "Ah," with a big smile on my face. And that's just who I've always been. And my... Mom and Dad put put that air beneath my wings, like the first play that I wanted to go audition for at age seven. They were like, Of course. And I got little Gretel in the sound of music. And that became my passion and my life's love was acting and theater and musical theater and and now film and TV. I do all those things. But it was because of their, you know, support. And my dad would wake us up by playing the piano. They, you know, these Famous songs and marches that he would play on the piano and it would wake us all up and he'd make breakfast. We always had like oatmeal and toast and dad made that and then he'd head to work and mom would get us all ready and go to school. And she read to us every night. My dad would tuck us in. We'd say our prayers by our bed. We were a happy, happy family and we were happy children we felt very safe we felt very loved we were listened to we talked around the dinner table every night i had that kind of home where my mom you know was a stay-at-home mom you know back in that era that was possible (laughs) it's not as possible anymore but she did and she loved it and and she wasn't just a stay-at-home mom she also directed the the miss pocatello pageant you know that went on to the state pageants and then the national you know my mom was just this very lovely loving even-tempered person my dad was more passionate and emotional he was the designer you know owned the flower shop and could do these beautiful things for people's weddings so he knew everybody in town he knew people on their happiest days When they were getting married or they were having babies or they were you know having a their first school dance and he'd practically give the corsages away to the boys you know that took me to the dances and and he also knew people on their saddest day when someone had passed away and he was taking their order for flowers and that's the kind of parents that i really had and i was very very lucky to have that foundation i always say oh those that are abused by a parent how did they survive? That's just such a mental, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel very lucky that I had those first 12 years, you know, and actually even when we met the Birchtold family for those two and a half years before everything changed, it was a very happy, you know, we, we had all kinds of play together. Their oldest children were the same ages as me and my two sisters, and then they had two younger ones, and we did everything together, you know. We rode bikes. We, we had family picnics. They had all the fun toys, the boats, and the, and the snowmobiles and the trampoline. And we didn't have those things, but we just lived, you know, a block away and uh, spent so much time having so much fun. And yeah, I we just didn't see it coming at all. Yeah. Like, why would you? We lived in Camelot. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Well, that's right. That's right, absolutely. Small community, felt safe, you know. You could get up in the morning on Saturday, hop on your bikes, you know go to the store, buy some penny candy, head to the park, you know, swing, slide, do your thing at the park, then head up to the racket club where we all went swimming and do that. And then you'd ride home and about four o'clock in the afternoon, you'd show up and go, oh, we're hungry, mom, what do you got for us? And that's just sort of how we lived. It was very, um, yeah, we just had no idea that people could be so, so calculating and so evil, really. Mm. And
0: so you were all part of the same Mormon church. Is that how you met them?
2: Yes, we met them at church. Uh, One Sunday we came to church and there was a new family. And of course we reached out and invited them you know to come over as we got to be a little more got to know them just you know through being at church and church activities things that you do like you have big parties or dances or picnics all of those things were a part of our the fabric of our day-to-day life you know that was part of being in the church and a lot of social activities as well as those sunday you know sunday school and and uh it was interesting because it didn't take too many months before he started to invite us over, and um, immediately it was so fun because they had this huge backyard that was all surrounded by trees, and we had other friends in the neighborhood as well that we had known before them, and they would all get, uh, we'd all get together and play night games and kick the can, and and then they had this big backyard and we'd do games back there, and it just became like. This was our regular family kind of fun night, or we'd go to the lake with the fact they had a boat, or we'd go snowmobiling when it was snowing up, you know, like Jackson Hole or someplace close. You know, it was just so much fun. yeah, <laughs> so you know anytime you you go into a place where you think everybody believes like you do, like the golden rule and love your neighbor and be kind and serve other people. Those were the things we learned at church. And, and uh, you just, there's just always an assumption that everybody else that's there is doing those same things and trying to be a good person. And mm-hmm. you just don't see it. Oh. That's because it's close. It's close to you. Why well, would you see it? I mean, yeah. it's
0: crazy growing up in that sort of environment. And Do you think right from the beginning, because I know that Robert Birchtold had, you know, a very close relationship with your dad. They were like best friends. And then he was Mm -hmm. very close with your mom. I mean, do you think he was just manipulating everybody right from the beginning?
2: Yeah, my FBI agent said he, he picked you right from the beginning when they came to church that sunday i think i might have even been singing a little solo in church i was 9 at the time when they moved in and my other sister karen was 7 and susan was 5 and he said i'm sure he targeted you immediately and he knew exactly what he had to do to divide and conquer and get his prey he'd have to you know create a a thing over here with your mom and get your dad to be his best friend and then get them both to do something that he could blackmail them with later he said he was just he was a master manipulator and he was a sociopath for sure if not a psychopath because I really don't think he had I don't think he had the normal feelings like what you described in the very beginning I don't think he he had those things he could pretend he could cry if you were talking to him about something that was tender or what you know he was very believable for sure but i don't know that he actually felt those things
0: no and is somebody like that sort of living almost in a fantasy world is that what's happening with them
2: that's what i think i think that he thought about it so much that it became an obsession he was so obsessed with with getting me with you know making kind of the perfect crime happen and then getting the little girl to like fall in love with him and getting my mom to charming her so that she'd do something that otherwise i don't think she ever would have done and my dad same thing that it became this obsession like i i'm going to think i'm going to think about this day in and day out you know in all my waking hours, I think he was always planning and calculating and watching for, oh, now I see where that person's Achilles heel is or, oh, there's a need that they have that I, I'll fill. I'll figure out how to, you know, fill in that need that I now have found out about or, you know, or their weakness, you know, taking taking those things into consideration in a very calculating way for sure yeah. is what he was doing.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you're living what appears, well, it is an idyllic life, yeah. even though there's obviously this manipulation going on. Can you tell us about the, the time you are abducted, the first time you are abducted?
2: Yeah. So now we're like two and a half years into this very close friendship. And I've gone horseback riding before with him because he had clients that were a furniture store. He owned a furniture store and uh, he would take you know furniture out or he'd go out to measure something or to to meet with somebody and there were a couple of places that were were out of ways out of our town into another smaller town that he had clients and they had horses you know they lived in a on a ranch or or somewhere in in the countryside and And he knew that I wanted to learn how to ride horses. Again, he would find out these details of something that mattered to you and then make sure that he could be the guy to fulfill that thing. And so um, I'd been horseback riding with him before. And he had, you know, well, I'm going out there. I'll just take her and get her on a horse and see how, you know, if it's a natural fit. And sure enough, I was pretty good at it. And then one time he took his oldest son as well. And... It was just like goodwill kind of thing. You just didn't think about it at all. We were that close. It would be like, you know, you have to think of, you know, do you have a brother that would say, oh, I can take them. I'll I'll take these kids out to learn this thing because I'm going out that way anyway. And you wouldn't think anything of it. That's how it was. So this third time, I think it was about the third time. he's he. My dad had started to feel like we do too much with this family. Like we have... Other family in town my dad's an identical twin and so his twin brother and his wife and their four boys were also you know a big part of our life they lived farther away from us than than this family did but you know we were very close and my dad was like we've got to still you know this is too much we got to stop doing so many things it's just gotten overboard and I think he sensed that I think he sensed that pulling away so he basically called my dad and said look I'm going out to the you know to this ranch and I gotta do something uh, furniture wise and I can take Jan out there to go horseback riding and my dad was like no it's a school night she's not going and um, he's like oh but I already told her about it you know don't disappoint her you know I don't want to see her be sad and disappointed she's so good at it she could actually like maybe compete at some point you know And my dad's like it's a school night the answer is no well then he goes and works on my mom goes over and he says look you're, you know, I want to take her out there because I have to go out there anyway. She's got piano. My mom says she can't go. She's got piano. She's got homework and it's a school night and I don't think her dad wants her to go. So come on, just don't, don't pressure me. Well, then Jan bounds up the stairs and she's like, Oh, please mom, let me go. I want to go horseback riding. Please. Oh, please. Oh, please. And, um, So my mom is like, oh my gosh, between the two of you, I never can, I can't maintain control. And so anyway, she says, okay, but you have to have her home before dinner because Bob's probably going to be mad at me for letting her go. And so I'm like, yay. And so I go to piano and sure enough, he picks me up, hands me my allergy pill and I take it. And unbeknownst to me, he has replaced my allergy medicine, because I'm allergic to horses and cats and a few other things. He has replaced that little capsule with a sleeping, some sort of sleeping pill. So I fall fast, fast, fast asleep, and I don't remember how or when. I know I remember feeling tired, and I used to curl up on the side of the, you know, back then we didn't even wear seat belts or anything, and the, the front seat was just one big seat, right? And I remember just curling up and kind of leaning on the door, the arm of the door, and just falling asleep. And I don't remember anything after that until I woke up to the sound of that, you know, uh, monotone, high-pitched, staccato voice that scared me so badly because it sounded like exactly... When when he'd take all the kids to the science fiction movies, or we'd sit and watch Lost in Space or Star Trek, all of that was very popular in the 70s, those kind of shows, and he made sure that we had seen a lot of them. That was part of his grooming but we didn't know it was innocent you know oh let's watch Planet of the Apes tonight everybody it's the it's this new show on TV and and you know Gail will bring the cookies and and Marianne you make the popcorn and I mean he just had every piece of this puzzle planned out and so when I woke up strapped down at my my wrists and my ankles were strapped to the bed I couldn't move except to kind of lift my head up and my shoulders up a little bit to that box that sound I immediately connected all those dots that I had been taken by a UFO and you know people ask me well how long did it take for him to brainwash you I said all of that grooming is brainwashing it took 10 seconds I'm I'm 12 and I'm a young 12. I'm a tiny little 12. You know, I'm an innocent 12. I don't hit puberty till I'm 17 years old. I'm way, you know, I'm not stupid, but I'm, I'm, I live in an innocent, I'm a child. Yeah. And it's amazing that someone who seemed like a person that You know, if my parents had died, my sisters and I would have wanted, you know, them to raise us, you know, or that someone that that can convince you that can manipulate you into thinking that they love you like a like a father or a favorite uncle or a best friend as he was to my dad could do that to a child. It really is just horrific. Yeah as I look back.
0: Oh, absolutely. So you, you wake up and you have your hands and feet tethered and there's a box and it's an alien. And what is the alien telling you?
2: So basically it was repeating certain phrases over and over again. And I would fall in and out of this deep sleep and it would wake me up and then I'd fall back asleep and I'd be untethered. And it would say, you can now go to the bathroom. We've been watching you since you were born. We have all of your favorite foods. You have a very important mission to accomplish. Female companion, that's what they always called me, never by my name, female companion. Now there is a male companion that we are going to make sure we'll take care of you in preparing you for the mission, you know, and then as time went on, this is over a couple of days, it would repeat all of those things over and over again, and I'd fall asleep, and I'd wake up, and I'd eat my favorite foods that were in the cooler that were there in the back, and I'm like, oh my gosh, these people have really been watching me, and that I'm a special child or a special person. I can't remember if they if they if they called me a child or not, but I remember female companion, you are special. You are chosen one. You are the chosen one for our planet, for our earth. You are part of us. And as time goes on, they're saying things like you are half alien, half human. You will have child to save our planet, you know, things like that. And it just is like, of course, looking back with, you know, your view of I'm an adult now, and I can see all the brainwashing techniques that were used. I've studied brainwashing so that I would be able to put labels on things, but it's very common for someone to take a familiar story and then change things just slightly. And so for me, growing up a Christian and having Christmas every year and acting out the Christmas story, when the alien voices are telling me, your mother, my mother's name is Mary, you know, and you're your father is just your earthly he's like your caretaker like joseph but your real father is a person from our planet and your mother had you she doesn't remember being overshadowed by this other person this alien you know god and now you are that special child that will now have the savior to save our dying planet because our planet is dying It's a huge amount of pressure for a 12-year-old, and it may seem like an unbelievable story, but it is called inculcation. When you take something familiar to a child and you twist it to your own purposes, it seems completely plausible. And it happens with adults, too. I mean, it's not just children. You know, it was really, really nefarious, the planning and how he planned that you know, using familiar things or using, you know, tenants from my, you know, religious background and and belief and and, and going on a mission, you know, having a a purpose that was bigger than this life and that, you know, that I took it on. I mean, I believed it was real, 150%. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And so at this time when you're in this space here in the aliens, are you spending time with him? Are you...
2: Well what happens is within about 3 days I I believe of course I don't have a watch or a clock on the wall but I think it was about 3 days from the t- amount of time that I was in and out of deep sleep and that I was eating back there there was a partition so I couldn't see who was driving the motorhome I knew I was moving I knew I was in a motorhome but I didn't know who was driving well the voice says we need you to now go to the front of the motorhome, and there you will meet the male companion. So I wake up from another deep sleep. This is what my instructions are. The partition between the back part of the motorhome and the front part was gone, or in the wall, or something. It wasn't locked anymore. And so I was able to walk to the front, and who should be laying on the little sofa covered with blood? I thought he was dead, but B. B. This person that was like my favorite uncle that I'm like, someone familiar. I've been in terror for, you know, 72 hours. And now I see this person that loves me that I know and I'm waking him up and, oh, BB, B, you have to wake up. We've been taken. We've been taken, you know, and he wakes up and he's like great actor. You know, what happened, Dolly? We were, he called me Dolly. Dolly, we were driving out to go horseback riding. I saw this white light. The car went out of control. Oh, no. Are you okay? And he's got cuts on him and he's bleeding and, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. And of course, you know, from then on, we were in this together. Oh, he's the male companion. I don't even know what that fully means yet. I don't know that that means I'm eventually going to be abused and then eventually raped by this person I don't know that but that's exactly how it unfolds and it's almost like he's playing along with this whole thing and he's like well, I don't want to hurt you and I'm sorry about this and you know, but this is what we have to do in order to m- make sure we accomplish the mission and we certainly don't want them to take Susan who's also half alien and half human because there's more things coming and and there's threats and rewards that that are so carefully placed and for children it's such a confusing thing especially if you can't grow up and say, oh, it was this violent thing, then you almost feel so guilty, like, not that I was enjoying it, because I wasn't, I, was, I wasn't at that point of my development at all yet, but even others who have talked about their own, especially experiences with someone in their family, where it can be not violent, but almost in this kind of loving thing, and then they feel so guilty about having any kind of you know feelings we all feel okay if we feel like i mean i i i think it's almost harder if they're you know if it's kind of this mixture of you know i'm trying to show you what love is and you're a kid and you're like this hurts and this is awful but they're trying to be nice and i have to do this it's just so It's just so confusing and so mentally, you know, it's really traumatic. And we live with that trauma.
0: You you know, if somebody is just raping you in a nasty way, it's like you can hate them and you can Mm -hmm. feel so upset. But but this is just so, this is just levels of manipulation, isn't it? Where
2: you you love this man's a
0: beautiful dad figure and then there's all this other stuff going on it's like wow you know how do you even get through that it's it's um yeah so much and so this went on for a few weeks
2: almost six weeks weeks. yeah it was almost six weeks just shy of six weeks when the Mexican police the uh, federales came early in the morning to the motorhome door and broke the door down And came in, stormed the motorhome, grabbed him, grabbed me, put us in a a little van with about six six police officers and basically took us to the to the kind of one of those courtyard type of jails where there were, you know, jails, but there was a big courtyard and I was put into a a room on a chair and of course I don't speak that the language um, at that time and and it was just, he was taken to some cell and it was scary. And I just sat there, you know, waiting for something to happen. And eventually, um, one of the guards came in and said, come, you know, come, you know, this way. And, and they took me down into the like the lower level of this prison where he walked down these stairs and it was really damp and had kind of this musty smell. I remember that very pungent smell and walked me to where his cell was, where he was, and then they they opened the door and let me go into his cell. And while I was in there, he had given, uh, he told me, and of course I could see it on the guard, I have given my ring to this guard that's how I got you down here because the two aliens who had names I mean he made it all very personal like I mean of course I don't think it's him doing this at the time but so Zeta and Zethra were the names of, of the two alien females that I could hear talking to me all the time they had names you know they were real and he said they've come to me and they've told me that um, we can't talk about four things. And if we do, we're going to be vaporized. And I said, what does that mean? What is vaporized? He said, I don't know. Maybe it's like burning in scalding water or something. I don't know. You know, this is the kind of, you know, threats that, that kept me quiet for four years now, you know, it goes on for four more years. Um, And so you can't talk about them, the aliens, you can't talk about the mission. You can't talk about all of the stuff that we have to do in order to, you know, hopefully we'll get, get this alien baby inside of you so that you can have the baby for the dying planet. And then you can't talk about the sleeping, relaxing pills and medications and stuff that he would give me. Same kind of sleeping stuff that, that he did when he drugged me to get me into the motor home. So I, I was like, I won't tell I won't say anything I won't do anything and of course I didn't and so that's how things went on things continued to go on that otherwise would not have happened if he had not so carefully you know mentally uh, tormented my every waking moment so that even when he was not there I was positive that they were watching me because they've been watching me since I was born and so those were the things that kept happening as he was, you know, my parents came. I was so happy to see them, but I didn't tell them anything other than wait, we can't leave. We can't leave Mexico. Uh, we, we have to take B with us, you know, which uh, didn't happen. But shortly after, he was extradited. And then I, I mean, it went on. Mm-hmm. He, of course, made bail and. And he would show up in my bedroom and put the box there, the box would turn on, I would hear the voices, and then he would be standing there, you know, in his socks. And it was terrifying. And so it went on, I would get notes from, you know, people that I didn't know at school, that would say you need to ride your bike to this phone booth at the corner of center and you know, whatever, and 17th. and. And I would go on my bike. Mom, I'm home from school. I'm going to go on a bike ride. And I'd ride to that phone booth and sit on the floor and wait for it to ring. And sure enough, it would. And it would be him. Or it would be one of those voices from the aliens on the other end of it telling me what to do next. It was just so psychological terror is really, is really what the experience was. I was almost more afraid of all of that than even the abuse and the rape and the constant you know trying to figure out where can i go to hide so that he can come there and then do its dirty work because we got to have this baby to save this dying planet or i'm never going to get out of this and my little sister's going to be taken because that was one of the threats so you do everything you're told if you're if you're threatening a member of a child's family like one of the threats was that my sister karen would go blind or that my dad would be removed, and I knew that that meant he would be killed, or that Susan would be taken because she was also half alien, half human. Kids do whatever they have to do to protect those most important people in their life. That's why they don't tell, even if we have wonderful conversations, and we, like we did, our parents, I mean, we were all probably more naive than we are today didn't have a lot of information or, I mean, none of us had hit the age where we were talking about, you know, sex and things like that really yet. I was nine. I mean, I'd asked a few questions, you know, and my mom had been, you know, this is where babies come from and this is how it happens, but not in lots of detail. I mean, we weren't there yet. And so then all of this comes and happens and it's just, it's just been a journey.
1: and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: It's what, been hard. What did he
0: tell? I mean, you you've obviously been missing for weeks and weeks. You're not saying right. anything has gone wrong. What is he telling people has happened to you for all those weeks?
2: Basically, he says, I had a depressive episode he had told my, my dad at one point that he had been in this terrible, a terrible things had happened from his aunt when he was really little. And she was like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years older than him. And he was three or four or five, somewhere in there. And I don't know if it's true or not, but he had said this had caused this great amount of depression that, you know, she had basically either tried to or had sex with him on some level and my dad was like, I mean, he'd never heard of anything like that before. And he was like, oh, and he's he's got this really bad depression. And he used that, you know, several times before I was ever kidnapped when he saw a psychiatrist in Beverly Hills. At least he said that's what he, where he was. And then he came back with these tapes and he'd put the earphones on and listen to these tapes because the psychiatrist said, well, you're supposed to lay by the a person that you think was about the age of the person that that hurt you and so he said well i think she was 10 or 11 or 12 and then you lay there and you listen to these tapes and then you you know imagine that you're empowered and that you're in charge even though you're a little tiny person you were 3 or 4 and and it'll help your depression it will help your condition uh, these depressive moods that he would get in, and his wife would talk about those sometimes to my parents. well, you know he has depression, and he has these things that you know he didn't have a very happy childhood. The stepfather was not his biological father, and he kept him he had to sleep in the barn with one of the other boys because there wasn't enough room in the house and and you know there's a lot of stories that I don't have any idea if they're all true, but that's what he had told my dad and so You know, when he said, can I lay by Jan? She's a, you know, because the woman that hurt me was a female and she's about that age. And he just laid on the top of the bed and mom was in and out. She's ironed downstairs in the family room. My bedroom was downstairs and she'd come in and be putting clothes away. I'm asleep. I'm completely asleep. People lose their minds at that point in the documentary. And I'm like, it's because it's an unfinished story. You don't really understand what, how it really was, (laughs) but that's how it was. And this is before the first kidnapping. And so, you know, he's got his earphones on. He listens to whatever he's listening to for 20, 30 minutes. I never remember him being there um, or any, you know, any kind of molestation or anything happening. He wasn't under the covers. He was on top of the covers. I was asleep. Mom's in and out putting the laundry away. And then he'd go upstairs and he goes, okay, I did my session. I need to do like, you know, about two of those a week. I'm supposed to do that. And, you know, it's just so interesting in, you know, the beginnings of our whole psychology And the practice of therapy, this was one of those things that I didn't know if it was even real. And then I had a doctor tell me, oh, yeah, there was a thing. It was called association therapy or something. He goes, I don't know if he actually had a therapist telling him to do that, but there was something that was similar to that. It was an association to change your pattern of thinking or feeling or whatever. So it's interesting that he was smart enough to do research or to find the right, you know, therapist to I don't know if he was just manipulating everybody or if he was really trying I don't I don't know Mm -hmm. to me it feels like it was all manipulation yeah
0: absolutely and there was no google back then so you know you had a fair bit of effort going right going into that so so then so you're going to you've come home life kind of gets sort of back to normal but there's this whole other life that you're running around, listening to telephone calls, getting notes, and the aliens are turning up next to your bed
2: still. And then... And he turned up next to my bed a couple of times. Right.
0: And Mm -hmm. then he actually abducts you for a second time, doesn't he?
2: Yes, that's right. So that was about almost two years later. So I'm now 14 instead of 12, And he has me stage a fight with my parents, like they won't let me, you know, do what I want to do. And that I, you know, why can't we have a relationship with the Birchtolds? And I'm furious all the time because they're so controlling, all these things that I've been told to say. In fact, the whole note, he literally told me what to write. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote the note and, and then I was to stage a fight and I have a backpack that he had me pack with some things. And he's like, leave the note and forget to take the backpack so they can see that you were packing to run away. And then I will help you out of the window of the basement. Now, you know, years before the first kidnapping, we, us sisters, used to sleep in one great, big, huge, gigantic room downstairs. And... um he comes along and says, these girls are getting older and I have this furniture store and we ought to, you know, divide the the bedrooms so that they can all have their own bedroom. And where does he divide my bedroom to? The very end of the house where there's two windows up on the wall. You know, you have to get up there, but they're big enough. And so that's where um, I think he wired it so that that box could show up. I mean, I think he had that much forethought about it all. And so tap, tap, tap on the window. I've had a fight with my parents. There's the backpack. I know he's coming. And I say, oh, you can't cut Not right now. My mom is still up. She's still, she's still in the family room. Irony. <laughs> you know, like she always did watching her shows at night. And so then he leaves for a little bit. And then he comes back when he's sure all the lights are out. And, and that's the time when I... I push open the window and, uh, or I pull it, I think I pull it, and uh, and he's right there to help me out the window. We get into his, his fancy car and with no lights, no headlights, and he drives down the road really slow until we get to the road that goes out to the freeway, and then he turns on his lights and away we go. And there was kidnapping number two. Wow.
0: And so where did he take you this time?
2: He took me, actually, to a a home in California with a family that had uh, at, one, at least one teenage daughter that was a few years, I think, older than I was, and he had a big story about that he was a CIA agent and that he had to return, you know, to Laos, where there was all this unrest and that my mother had been killed in this, you know, in this... Um, I don't know, whatever was happening in Laos in 1976, um, he made up this whole story, and this family, I guess, believed him, or I don't think they were in on it or anything. I don't know how he met them, but he could charm anyone, you know. So he took me there and said, I'm going to leave her here for a couple of weeks. Thank you for taking care of her. Please don't tell anyone she's here, because that was the story that somebody was trying to find him and if they found me then he would you know crumble because of course they would torture me and then I would you know he would come out of hiding and that would be terrible national security you know the whole bit and um, so they were really nice to me and I I had a little bedroom up in the attic it was one of those places where you could see out at the night sky and uh, I remember I would read a lot. It was before school was starting. And now that I look back on the timeline, it was because he had to go back because he was serving his sentence finally from my first kidnapping, which was only a few days that he ended up having in jail. But he'd already taken me and put me in this home and then had to rush right back so he could serve his time and of course make sure that the authorities know well i obviously didn't take her here i am serving my 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 sentence i mean she's a runaway she can't stand her parents and she just had to get away from them they're the abusive ones you know so there he had his alibis and everything set up and then a couple weeks later when he was done serving his time and you know in disguise and as a con artist that he was he would come back to California to enroll me in a Catholic boarding school and again same story I'm this person my name is Frank Tobler my daughter is Janice Tobler her mother was killed in Laos in this unrest I'm a big high-level CIA agent please never tell anyone that she's here if people come looking for her it's because they're trying to find me I mean and set up those lovely nuns To believe him everybody believes him he's very convincing and um, it took it took uh, more than one attempt when they finally figured out that I was probably in California in a boarding school it was my mother god bless her she was so tough the second time because she had finally seen through him she'd had her short lived affair that happened with him and then she saw him then she at, at some point in that in between The two kidnappings she finally saw through him and she realized what am i doing i love my husband i love my daughters i i think this guy is trying to make this happen because he's after jan she finally really was like oh my gosh do people do that and he that's what he's doing so when she saw that my dad was sick in bed the second kidnapping was so hard on my dad he just felt like and i you know i had not had the same kind of relationship with my dad when i returned that i had had before that was one of those rules like you can't have relationships with boys at school you can't go to the school sock hops and the dances you can't do that because the male companion is who you have to be with all the time until the mission is complete until this alien child savior has been born That is your whole life and focus. And so for me, I was constantly trying to figure out how am I going to be with him? I got to get this over with or they're going to take my sister because that those years are going by, right? So as I look back on all of that and how carefully planned out it was with the threats the rewards. Okay, let's go. I'm going to come every weekend and take Jan from the boarding school, and I'm going to take her to the fanciest restaurants, and we're going to go on a shopping spree, and I'm going to tell her that I have a meeting that I've got set up with a movie director because she loves to act, you know. They figure out the things that matter to the child, and they give not just threats, but rewards or promises of rewards, and so it becomes this convoluted confusion where you're not only trying to save an alien planet literally you have the whole world on your shoulders and you have a high sense of purpose anyway as a kid you just that's how you're wired like you're going to help people that need help that's what you do so you have all of that plus the rewards plus the threats plus protecting your family members it's just like there's no win for for children who are targeted by sociopathic predators who are really very, very smart, unfortunately.
0: Yes. And this whole world has been woven around you and, and you standing in that, how are you actually feeling? Like, what do you, are you just, are you confused? I mean, you're taken from your family, you're in this other place. I mean, when I was that age, I would have been terrified, but you've also got so much other stuff going on with all of the things you're being told. I mean, what did you actually feel?
2: I felt alone. I felt lonely. I felt like I was a freak. I felt like I really was an alien. I remember running from the gym class to the showers which were a shared shower experience in the in those days you know a big shower with a whole bunch of heads and you take your shower and then you get dressed I would run from gym to get in the shower because I was still this flat-chested alien body, and I knew that's what I was, but I didn't want anybody else to see me that way because everybody else was starting to develop, not me, and I'd get uh, through that as fast as I could and grab a towel and, you know, get into the little curtain where I could get dressed now, and I just, I just felt so different and so weird and you already feel so different and weird when you're in junior high school you know it's just it was so compounded for me and yet because I have always had a high sense of purpose like I should do something to help people if I can I've always been like that it's kind of my parents the way they were the way my sisters are we're all kind of wired in that way so I I also had this great sense of purpose and I knew that even being alone in it it was still really important what I was doing. And then I would be in a play or I would do some sort of theater thing and that's where I could scream and cry and and you know express anger and all the feelings that I would have around this conundrum of my life being trying to act like I was a normal 14 15 year old And yet never feeling that way, feeling so weird. And so I felt alone. I felt so lonely. That was the biggest thing. And I felt fear. I felt fear almost 100% of the time because I thought I was being watched. And I never knew when the aliens were going to show up again or tell me to do something. And it was fear. Those two emotions were with me all the time for those Those four years, you know, it makes me cry today because I would feel so sad for some other, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old to be so lonely and to be so afraid all the time, you know.
0: Oh, beautiful Jan, such an incredible human. She has been through so much and yet she's out there telling her story and continuing to share all the details to bring awareness to this type of abuse so that another child never has to go through a similar experience. Please come back next week for part two of Jan's story because this is not the end. We'll find out what happened during this second kidnapping and how Robert told continued to show up in Jan's life for many years to come. Thanks so much for being here. I'll catch you next week.